Hello and welcome to another episode of Mussy Matches. I am Kieran Lefort and joining me as always is the man behind Mussy Matches, Mark Buckley. Mark, how's it going this week? Yeah, I'm good. Had my week off, uh, mostly recharged. Work has slowly started draining that battery again, but I'm good, thanks. <laughs> Excellent stuff. This week, we are talking about the oldest match to make the 104. Um, 40 years almost to the day uh, from the newest match on the list, which we talked about last week, which was, of course, Brian Danielson versus Kenny Omega. We are today talking about Andre the Giant versus Stan Hansen, New Japan Pro Wrestling, September the 23rd, 1981. Uh, I can't remember the arena. Does it matter? It's the Denen Coliseum, but considering it's the Denen Coliseum, I don't think I've ever heard of it. It was a 10,000-seater tennis stadium built in the 30s, demolished in 89. Well, that's interesting, considering last week we talked about a wrestling match in a 21,000-seater tennis stadium. In the guest seat this week, a wrestling author, historian, referee and promoter, friends of lemurs everywhere and foot fetishists apparently, but not (laughs) if they like Avenged Sevenfold. It is Patrick W. Reed. Patrick, (laughs) thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to give you all the noob questions. Uh, how did you become a wrestling fan in the first place? Right, so I had a sort of first wave of fandom as a kid in the sort of early to mid nineties mm-hmm. on getting Sky TV for the first time and just watching every bit of content that I could get my hands on, and wrestling was part of that. Um, but that was quite short lived. I think the the pressures of everyone around me telling me it was fake. <laughs> eventually eventually wore me down mm. um and also it being the mid 90s meant we also had gladiators and power rangers so if i wanted yeah. fake fighting and people <laughs> in spandex that was that was everywhere i wasn't <laughs> i wasn't hard up for the for the choice um but then around 2000 uh i played the the demo of smackdown one on the playstation and that was the the kind of re-entry point mm. And it turned out by that point, I was at a new school and a new place and everyone I knew was really into wrestling and I knew nothing about it anymore other than the sort of four characters you could play as on the on the demo <laughs> desk. And I just, from there, started watching it as much as I could and then within a few weeks was just completely hooked for every magazine that was on the shelves every book i could get my hands on every video in hmv um and i think mick foley's book Mm. was the one that then kind of opened my eyes to there being stuff outside of wwf wcw ecw that i just wanted more and more of Mm. Uh, and it's just never really stopped from there of just wanting to get my hands on more content (laughs) and how did you end up getting involved in the business beyond just being a fan and also did i miss any jobs off that list that i rattled off at the beginning oh um i've done a little bit of everything so Mm. um i i wouldn't even try and give myself a a comprehensive list um i tend to tell people that i've done everything that isn't wrestling although i have actually wrestled as well or (laughs) what could very charitably be described (laughs) as wrestled uh when i've been when i've been called upon to uh, so how I got involved is I used to live in Jersey and I was the the referee for Channel Islands World Wrestling, mm-hmm. where I'm now, despite not having lived there for a few years, I'm, I'm currently their commissioner. 
just to sort of keep me involved. <laughs> do, do, do you zoom in your uh, your, your pronouncements? Oh, I wish I could. It's, instead, I um, I fly over at great personal expense to do a two minute promo every now and then. Uh, <laughs> but um, with Jersey being a very small and weird place, a wrestling promotion starting up there. If you were a wrestling fan, you kind of you were going to know someone involved in it. Yeah. And the guy who started it, who wrestles as uh, as Dirty South and trained everyone that, or the majority of the people that wrestle there now, I was actually at college with his brother. He'd gone off and trained um, with, I think, with the FWA and Varsity Pro, mm-hmm. but became clear he was never going to leave Jersey and move to England and actually be able to get bookings all the time. Mm. So I started training people more locally, which involved buying a ring and getting it shipped over and a lot of logistical nightmares. More of the, more of the great personal expense you mentioned. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they ended up running a show with um, a Brit- an old British promoter, Shane Stevens, who um, the less said about the better, really. If anyone knows him, they'll understand that one. A very experienced British wrestler recently told me that he was the dodgiest person he'd ever had to deal with in 30-plus years of wrestling. Think of the uh, ground that could be. Exactly. <laughs> this, this, this is someone who has worked for promotions all over the world. I was going to name a specific one that probably would have narrowed down who I was talking sure, about. Sure, fine. But, we'll, um, we'll keep it as vague as you want to keep yeah. it. But in, in any case, um, off the back of a quite successful Shane Stevens-run show with local wrestlers on it channel island wrestling got a um a regular gig at a hotel mm. running god i think the first year we did 14 shows a year mm. and six of those were consecutive weeks so every sunday mm. doing a show in the same venue and i got asked very early on if i wanted to be involved first as a manager and then they quickly realized they didn't have a referee <laughs> and that someone would need to do that when they started running their own shows. And I, I kept turning them that turning them down. I knew few, quite a few of them by that point. I'd sort of hung out with them. I'd been down to where they trained, but I used to have real stage fright about being up in front of an audience at all. Mm. And it got to about two weeks before the show. And I thought, well, if I don't do it, I'm going to go to their first show and watch someone else do it and be really annoyed that it's not me. <laughs> um, so that was it, really. I, I started refereeing with no training whatsoever, with no idea what I was doing other than what I'd seen on TV. Can you count to three? Yes, put this stripy shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and sort of picking it up as I went along. And I think I was probably about five years in before I would consider that I had any idea what I was doing. <laughs> and that came from working with people. Um, I did a match with, refereed a match with Drew Gulak, where he made it very, very clear throughout everything I was doing wrong. <laughs> and it was an incredible learning experience, but deeply unpleasant to live through. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and then I've just gradually got, I, I love the, the booking and the creative side of things. Mm. I love coming up with with finishes. I love the bit that is sort of every promoter's nightmare normally of 
someone's pulled out, someone's car's broken down, half the card has to be changed around. You've got to get everyone in a room and figure out how you're going to fix it. You enjoy like the practical problem-solving aspect. Yeah, yeah, and I think all of, creatively, all your best work comes from that. Yeah. And that's the stuff that I love doing. Mm. Um, I loved it a lot less when running my own show back in June <laughs> and and having three or four people all pull out the day before. That was... <laughs> when it was all on me, it's slightly less exciting. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I ref- refereed for 10 years, um, became a bit of a running joke that every time I said I was retired, I'd get a bucking the next week. <laughs> but I am, um, I mostly consider myself done refing, but I'll muck in with just about anything else. I've done timekeeping, um, a little bit of emceeing. As I said, but I ran, ran a charity show. Mm back in june i'll plug that properly at the end i'm sure yeah um so yeah that's the it's a long way around to how i got involved and ended up doing little bits of everything really hey that's that's absolutely fine but you will never again count a pinfall i i'm not gonna rule it out (laughs) (laughs) so uh, i also mentioned historian at the beginning as i said this is the oldest match we're uh we're, we're talking about on this show um what kind of sparked your interest in the old stuff uh, so as i said so the more i got into wrestling the more i just wanted to get as much of it and understand as much of it as i possibly could mm. and i think that's just how i've always approached anything that i'm interested in mm. um if if i get into a band i want to know everything that they listen to and who they grew sure. up into. If they've covered something, I'm going to listen to the original and find out where that came from. Mm-hmm. I'm the sort of person who, if I've watched a movie, the first thing I do at the end of it is go on Wikipedia and read all of the behind the scenes about it. I can understand a lot of this. <laughs> and the more you read into the history of, of wrestling or of anything, really, mm. there's a sort of tipping point where you think you've got a pretty clear idea of where it all comes from and, and what happened. And then you just find something that completely turns your understanding on its head and you realize you don't know anything. Mm, there's another door with more information behind exactly. it. Exactly. And, yeah. and you know, that might be stepping outside of the the WWE-sanctioned version of history for the first time. Yeah. Or it might be that you've read a couple of old history books but not really realized that they were written by someone with an agenda or someone who was running off a very particular set of sources. Hmm. And we're so lucky now that it's so much easier to delve into archives and look through pretty much any newspaper ever published for the last hundred odd years Hmm. that I fell deep down a rabbit hole of researching George Hackenschmidt for a few different reasons. Hmm. Mark, did he get any nominations? <laughs> Put me on the spot, why don't you? Probably not. I doubt very no. much he did. Uh, unfortunate, one, of, one of the unfortunate things is that there is no surviving footage. Of, there we go. Of there George Hackenschmidt. So unless um, we had a very old contributor who was there live. <laughs> which, is, which is something that I could, again, talk, talk about endlessly, that there are movies that he auditioned for mm. that other, uh, to play an old Greco-Roman wrestler. Mm. Uh, that he then didn't get the part. There's one, um, I said, film noir movie, and the name escapes me, but it has Stanislaw Zabisco in it mm. as yeah, a wrestler of 
the very early 20th century. Mm. And he beat out George Hackenschmidt for that part. So that would have been, if he'd got it, the only footage of, of Hack wrestling. Wow. But Zabisco's always screw something up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the research front, I can just put the word Hackenschmidt into the British newspaper archive mm. and dig up a thousand contemporary articles about him that not only contradict a lot of the the older history books that were written, but mostly all contradict each other as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, a, It is after all, a business of carnies. Yeah. No, our oldest match that got a nomination was as recent as 1952, and that was Lou Fez versus Vern Gagné. So speaking of numbers and nominations, Mark, uh, what? Are the, how many nominations did Andre get here? How many did Stan Hansen get? This is the only Andre match we're going to talk about on the show, isn't it, I think? Yep, it's the only Andre match we're going to talk about. So five matches got nominated from four different promotions. So the earliest one was a 1972 match from IWE, which mm-hmm. was Andre the Giant, Franz Van Boyten, and uh, Tito Copper, also, I believe, known as Ali Bay, against... uh, also known as Hassan Bay. And Hassan Bay. He, I, we can get into this later. Uh, I, I watched that match. I think. Yeah. Uh, yes, and uh, old old uh, Tito Kopacz from Poland went under a million names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was him against uh, Sami Taranishi, Russia Kimura, back when he wasn't just spitting on people. Or was mm-hmm. it Haruka Eigen? I can't remember who the Japanese spitty guy was. Eigen's the, Eigen's the spitter. And Funda Sugiyama. Uh, mm-hmm. The other ones were a 1979 Antonio Inoki singles match, uh, the Hogan match at Mania 3, mm-hmm. and uh, this is an interesting one. Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant in a handicap match against Nick Bockwinkle, Ken Patera, and Bobby Heenan from the AWA in uh, 82. Okay. Which would be interesting. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so just the five for Andre. Mm -hmm. Stan had a a much bigger handful. He had 15 nominations, not a single one from mainland United States. Okay. Okay. 13 from Japan and two from Puerto Rico, of all places. Uh, and this is the second of three matches that we'll be covering for Mr. Hansen. Sure. Um, I certainly hadn't seen any... I was trying to work it out. I haven't seen... Apart from this match, I had never seen any pre-WrestleMania 1 Andre the Giant. And I think the earliest Hansen I've seen is a 1986 AWA match with the guy who was nowhere near becoming Vader yet. <laughs> um mark had you ever seen like like you I, you have said previously you don't like to go back through old u.s wrestling but when it comes to old japanese wrestling and these two being pretty big names in japan had you like encountered them on your your, your history tour so basically i have previous guests on this podcast to blame for having seen the only examples of both of these guys from the 70s okay. <laughs> um so I've seen a, uh, I think it was 1976 because it was a Hansen versus Bruno Sammartino cage match mm-hmm. from after Hansen had broken Sammartino's neck. Right. And prior to this match, it was the only time that I've seen someone completely dominate Stan Hansen and just mm. 
control him and Hanson having to fight from underneath because, of course, the story was it's Madison Square Garden. Bruno is the son of Madison Square Garden. Yeah. He's like the biggest star. And the match was 100% Bruno getting in there, getting his revenge and the finish of basically beating the crap out of Hanson and then deciding, right, I've had my fill of revenge. I'm just going to walk off because you can't stop me. That was the that was the Bruno revenge formula. Yeah, wasn't I mean, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is where yeah the WWF having the the cage escape rule really came from. Mm. It was always about Bruno being able to beat you so soundly that you could just casually walk out at the end of the match. And now, was they said that was the Garden? I think they had a cage match at Shea Stadium that was the on the undercard for the the broadcast of Inoki versus Ali as well. Yeah, they were. Because I remember that Bruno specifically was asked to wrestle on the undercard of one of those shows. And it was kind of one of the things that kept things pleasant, shall we say? Pleasant. (laughs) I mean, when you've got that main event and you kind of sat there and you're watching it closed (laughs) caption, that's probably not a... Palatable and watchable. (laughs) Yeah, that was probably the word I meant. Yeah, pleasant is fine. Uh, and as for Andre, mm-hmm. uh, the the match that we were talking about, the 1972 match mm-hmm. uh, from IWE, which I really like because it's just a fantastic um, slapstick comedy match. Um, yeah, I, I, think really you, I think if you like, maybe we can talk about that later after we've talked yep. about the main match. But that was recommended by Felix Kohlenberg, and it was a match that he nominated. Interesting. So as this is our only opportunity to talk about Andre the Giant, uh, I mean, he retired slash died before most of our listenership were born. <laughs> um, there is a fair chance that there are a lot of people who don't know who Andre the Giant is. Mm. Are, are you able to sort of like give a lot of like potted history of uh, of Andre? Yeah, I mean, I can't give you the the stats on how tall he got because I haven't got that in my notes. Oh, but, uh, well, it was mostly a lie anyway, as yeah. uh, as far as I know. There's a, there's a brilliant sense of kind of print the legend with Andre. Yeah. In that before the true attendance of WrestleMania 3 was Dave Meltzer's biggest kind of sticking point, it was always how tall was Andre the Giant. That's right. And, Could only lad look him eye to eye. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think... <laughs> Wrestling fans, just in general, decided that they'd rather not know. Yeah. That we would rather believe that he was kind of larger than life. And, you know, maybe when he died, he was, I say, only six foot ten. That's still ridiculously tall, but much shorter than he was billed at. But when he was billed as seven foot four or whatever else, we'd just rather believe that he was. And we'd rather believe pretty much any story we ever hear about him, whether it's about drinking gallons of beer every night or um, there's Being a story... Being to school by Samuel Beckett. Or... <laughs> That's exactly what I was about yeah. to bring up. The story that um, allegedly when he was a kid growing up in France, he was driven to school by Samuel Beckett. <laughs> and I don't think there's a source for that beyond Andre telling people. Yeah. I don't think it actually really maps out that well if you try and plot it against where Samuel Beckett would have been living at that time. Mm. But I still want to believe it. I want to live in a world where Andre the Giant was driven to school by Samuel Beckett. And I also, 
I want to live in a world where Andre the Giant doesn't feel the need to lie about things to impress people (laughs) because he's already Andre the Giant. Yes. So Andre debuted in 1966 um, and spent a few years uh, mostly wrestling in France. By 69, he was in the UK. Uh, wrestling for joint promotions against the likes of his future Conan the Destroyer co-star, Pat Roach. If you're wondering why I'm saying co-star, it's because Pat Roach wrestled wrestled as, played the character Manape, and Andre was basically in a monster (laughs) costume as Dagoff, but uncredited. I have seen seen pictures from that shoot. That is is very much Andre in a costume. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so Andre's first tour outside of Europe was in uh, for IWE, which was one of the Japanese wrestling promotions that uh, they were the rival of the JWA and died out fairly soonish after New Japan and All Japan got mm. properly established. Um, so he wrestled a few tours there. By 1971, he was in North America. 1973 was Andre's big year. It was the year he debuted for the WWWF and the NWA. And supposedly uh, Vince McMahon Sr. had a deal with Andre where he basically put Andre to one side because even by this point in the Canadian territories after two years, supposedly Andre was... uh, Losing his star power a little bit. So Mm. so what happened was Vince Senior said, right, what we're going to do is you're going to slow it down. You're going to play it big, be the big man that people bounce off. Mm. And more importantly, you're going everywhere. The strategy for Andre was have him in as many territories as possible. uh, So he spends as little time in one place as possible Mm. so that he always feels fresh. And... So from 1974 till 1984, he was wrestling in New Japan, WWF, and the NWA territories every single year. Mm. From 80 to 84, he was wrestling at least 205 matches a year. Admittedly, it's not as much as the likes of Flair were in that period, I believe, but it's still a hell of a lot of matches. Yeah, I mean... A schedule for a normally fit athlete like that is a big punishing schedule. Mm. Now imagine being Andre's size. Yeah. And a lot of that is trying to squeeze onto planes or yeah. squeeze onto a coach or just ordinary life must be so di- like just having imagine if he just had an office job that would be difficult enough but Mm. being a world traveling pro wrestler at the size of andre the giant so it's the reason why in the wwf you sometimes heard tim white referred to as his handler yeah and it was so if they pulled over at a a shop tim white could get out of the car and go and actually Mm. buy something rather than having andre have to get in and out of cars and squeeze through doors that weren't built for people his size I said, someone that Andre can't travel comfortably on planes, there's horrible stories about how he can't fit in a train bathroom and he was yeah. doing flights from the US to Japan. Yeah. Uh, one of the stories with uh, when he was working for Vince McMahon Senior, who, as Mark said, just booked him out everywhere 
and wouldn't let him outstay. And got a cut of it. Yes, yeah, he was his agent, so received a percentage. That's probably the more um, important part for Vince McMahon Sr. <laughs> the whole point was that Andre wouldn't outstay his welcome, that you're not impressed by how tall he is if you're seeing him every week. And also, he was never losing, so you very quickly run out of ways to protect him and, and book him yeah. sensibly. Yeah. There's a reason he's never wrestled Bob Backlund. He never wrestled Bruno and Sam Martino yeah. in singles yeah. matches, and there's a reason for that. His only world heavyweight run was in the WWF when Vince insisted on having Andre as an exclusive talent. And even then, his only world title was the sort of phantom reign before he gave it to... Yeah, that's yeah. the yeah. yeah, that's was, the only one. Yeah, yeah. he and you know, during that time, he was a very, pretty much a regular for New Japan. He mm. was appearing all over the US. He was a shareholder in the Montreal Territory. Mm. And as you say, it's, it's a schedule that would be punishing for anyone. Mm. let alone Andre the Giant. And there were stories of, and I've heard this about other sort of larger wrestlers, so whether it was common or it's a sort of regular bit of bullshit, was that Vince Sr. had bought him a car and just torn out the driver's seat so that the, the only way he could sit comfortably in it was that he would sit in the back seat and drive from there because that's Gosh. the only way he had the leg room to fit in a standard size car. Yeah, car companies aren't in the business of making one-offs for big wrestlers. No. <laughs> yeah. But I I will say, thinking about the whole wrestler stuck in one time and the size not becoming, you know, the size basically wearing out its novelty value, that probably explains why Big Show had more turns than a Formula One racetrack. Absolutely. And that was, yeah, those stories of, of Vince saying, he needed to get the giant from WCW because WCW don't don't know how to buck a giant. Yeah, and then you know he turned face heel, face heel. Yep, about six times in the first three months that he was with the company, and within a week on free TV, he was looking at the lights of Steve Austin. <laughs> exactly, and <laughs> yeah, really, the same probably would have been true for Andre if he were expected to mm. work regularly on free TV. Yeah. And mm. not be able to just move on to the next territory and win a battle royal or win a handicap match and just come mm. in and prop up a, a territory every every few months. Mm. But at the time, he was, I think, eventually Bruiser Brody beat him out for it, but he was the highest paid wrestler in the world mm. just by doing that schedule of doing a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there, and mm. just never settling down anywhere. I mean, he is like they got called the eighth wonder of the world for a reason. You know, he is an attraction. Like at that yeah. point, who else is there like Andre the Giant? And and actually, that was another of uh, Vince Senior's rules for booking him. Whoever you were, you couldn't book him in a match with someone the same height as him. Yeah, ah. sensible. That whoever was out there that might have been as tall as Andre or come close to it. You could never put them together. They couldn't be photographed next to each other mm. because that would kill his drawing power if he wasn't. Because once you get over a certain height, you don't really have a frame of reference anymore. Mm. Yeah. And you, if someone's seven foot tall or seven foot five, no one's really going to know the difference. So you may as well keep exaggerating it as much as you like. Yeah, it's kind of it's a bit like temperature, isn't it? There becomes a point where it's just hot, and the actual number doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned one of the other matches nominated was the WrestleMania 3 match with Hogan. Yes. 
which is really most people's kind of baseline for what what and who Andre was. Yeah. As what is a kind of typical lumbering big man that unfortunately was well past his prime and a, a shell of his former self. Who went out there and wrestled Andre the Giant in the main event of WrestleMania 3. <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of reminds me of first getting online and there being these sort of bits of received wisdom about wrestling. And, oh, Andre genuinely used to be really good and he could really work. Sort of sat alongside Hogan was good in Japan for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As these are things which are sort of truisms, which is, oh, no, well, Hulk Hogan did an armbar once. <laughs> and, you know, somehow that makes him a better... You know, he had a good match with the Great Muta in 1993, as if anyone didn't. Yeah. So I really kind of assume, well, Andre was probably better, but he can't have been that great because the the size has its own limitations, that you can't be that great a wrestler. Yeah. But you go back and watch the match that we're looking at today or matches of his from the 70s, and it's not just that he could move a lot more fluidly than he could in later life. There's some incredible instincts there Mm. that I think are really underrated in Andre, that he really just fundamentally seemed to understand wrestling and his part in it in a way that a lot of people never figure out. Yeah. So let us, after this half hour of preamble, talk about this match. Uh, It is day 29 of the Bloody Fight Series Tour, which is, frankly, possibly the best name for a wrestling tour ever. Uh, Fun fact, uh, this card from September the 23rd, 1981, contains two people I've seen wrestle live. (laughs) Uh, Original Tiger Mask and Solar, the luchador, who have a match on this show. I have seen them separately wrestle live. <laughs> um, so this is not, in fact, the main event, although, I mean, there are times when it feels like it, um, starting with the massive pop just for that little pre-introduction they do in Japan. So you get the big full introduction while someone's getting to the ring, mm. but beforehand you get essentially coming to the ring, Stan Hansen. Place goes nuts. They already love Stan Hansen. Um, I need to ask, is it really bad that when I hear Andre the Giant in a Japanese accent, I'm waiting for the word panda on the end? (laughs) (laughs) What have you done to me, DDT? Yeah. Um, So Andre is here. It is the actual Andre. It is not a massive inflatable panda suit. Uh, He has Bruce Tharp desk. I'm sorry, Arnold Scarland with him. Uh, And Andre is swatting away every hand that tries to touch him. He's trying to be a heel, but he is he is equally as popular as Hanson at the intros. So Hanson tries to attack as Andre steps over the ropes, but gets a boot in the chest and two women who were in the corner to present flowers at the intros run for their lives. Uh, Andre, manage- Andre managing to hit a big boot as he's stepping into the yeah, ring. That's yeah. quite probably my favourite part of the entire match. <laughs> Uh, it immediately turns into an impromptu three-way as a long yellow streamer tries to tangle itself around both men and the referee. <laughs> uh, so Hansen does get the upper hand early. He's battering Andre in a corner, but when he whips him to the opposite one, he again gets a boot for his troubles. Uh, it's not as strong as the one coming over the ropes, but uh, <laughs> Hansen, frankly, sells it like Homer Simpson spinning in circles on the mat. <laughs> 
Uh, the crowd are screaming for Hansen as he repeatedly tries to elbow out of a bear hug. This is the most dramatic bear hug I think I've ever seen. Um, it seems weird to say this about a bear hug, but I actually liked it. Um, this is Andre not only catching his breath after being on the back foot from the get-go, it's also him smartly realising, I need to hold on to this man or he's going to clobber me. I think a lot of the psychology of this match is Andre thinking he has one thing that can take me down. It's the Western Lariat. Mm. I have to stop him using that at all costs. Well, there's there's a little bit of context here. So these two had had five matches in New Japan uh, before this. Mm -hmm. And if you know your 1980s Japanese wrestling tropes, you know what I'm about to say now. Mm -hmm. uh, the first <laughs> one was a five-minute double countout. The second one, which was the first of four in 1980, was another double countout. Mm -hmm. uh, then there was a three-minute double countout. <laughs> I'm starting to understand the finish of this match more. Yeah. But carry on. Then Stan Hansen got a two-minute countout win. Good Lord. Partly because he larrieted uh, Andre to send Andre out of the ring. And then in a homage, well, a, a foreshadowing, as it were, of the 1992 Royal Rumble, Hulk Hogan comes out and basically uh, gets uh, Andre uh, losing the match by basically brawling with him to cause the countout. I see. And then in December 1980, they had another three-minute double countout. A pattern emerges. So Hansen eventually manages to escape this bear hug by effectively hitting a super short-range lariat to the side of the head, and Andre collapses to one knee in the ropes. Um, as I said, he realises like this Western lariat is the big weapon, uh, delivered with the left arm, so he quickly takes control of it with an elbow, a headbutt, which he sells. I quite liked Andre <laughs> headbutting uh, Hansen's arm and selling it. Well, um, in a previous match between them... Uh, Andre actually bladed for a lariat. Like, he got larrieted and he came up bleeding. So I don't know if they were playing up like loaded elbow pads, but mm. it's like, yeah. Well, that, that is something else which plays into this match later on, so possibly. Yeah. Um, so uh, he's battering on the arm. He takes Hansen to the mat with something resembling a, a wakigatame. Cheeky seeing as Fujiwara was in the second match on this card. Uh, he lets go. He had to go and yell at the crowd for chanting for Hansen, but that gives Hansen time to get to his feet and lay in two stinging chops. And I mm. love the way Andre sells these. He sells them as though they would have put him down if he hadn't had the ropes behind him. So he's not falling over, but he's still putting over the power of his opponent. Uh, Andre gets a headbutt in uh, and punishes the lariat arm again, uh, but a corner whip and a charge is his un undoing. Uh, as Hansen moves, uh, Andre hits the buckle shoulder first and takes a bump. Um, Andre gets back to his feet, but it's through Hansen's strike. So Hansen is battering him, doesn't want him to let him get up. He's stomping him and kicking him and axe handling him. Uh, but Andre like, is, is sort of powering through them and getting back to his feet. And once they're both back vertical, they, uh, they do the compulsory fail to slam the giant spot. What I found was really funny to me was unlike in the WWF in the build for WrestleMania 3 where it was all, nobody's ever slammed Andre. Here, mm. the commentators start reeling off the list of names of people who've managed it. <laughs> uh, Harley Race, Roland Bock, Hulk Hogan, Antonio Inoki. 
I've seen Ricky Choshu do it, I think. Hansen definitely manages it at, at some point. Uh, this match. Is it, it, it was yeah. in this match, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and you mentioned Roland Bach. Yes, I, this sent me on a Wikipedia rabbit hole, this one comment on... Uh, on I, I, I wrote about a lot about Roland Bach recently. Okay. Um, so this is very near the end of Stan Hansen's run with New Japan. Mm. I think he, he jumped ship to All Japan the following year, yeah. sort of early in 1981 and becomes the first person to have pinned both Inoki and Barber. Mm-hmm. And I think remains the only person to have beaten them both clean. Uh-huh. And obviously then remains with All Japan for the remainder of his career. Yeah, But he, at some point in there, he fit in a tag team with Roland Bock. Which, and I've never seen the two of them team together. Mm. But Bock was, uh, if you've ever played as him or played against him on, on any of the Fire Pro games that he shows up in, you know, he's absolutely indestructible. Really? And it's based on one or two matches that he had in, in Germany with Anoki on an early New Japan tour. Mm. Bok brought in, in the early 70s, Inoki, uh, Fujinami, I think, and a handful of other uh, kind of New Japan guys for the Catch Europa tournament with a mm. lot of ex-Olympian wrestlers and boxers in Germany. Yes, he's a, he's an ex-Olympian himself. He was a heavyweight at the 68 Olympics. Yes. Yeah. And he has a match with Inoki in Stuttgart where if you've seen the Antonio Inoki Great Antonio fight where Inoki stiffs the hell out of Great Antonio and yep. doesn't let any offense in, imagine that with the roles reversed where Antonio Inoki <laughs> is playing the part of great Antonio because boss gives him absolutely nothing Mm. out grapples him on every exchange (laughs) stiffs him doesn't sell a single shot he gives him Anoki starts resorting to the uh the crab walk kicks from the Ali fight (laughs) and at the end Bok goes over and I don't think that was how it was booked I think Anoki had been booked to win or for it to go to a DQ and footage of that fight ends up in Japan where Inoki's still trying to present himself as unbeatable. Ooh. So he has no choice but to bring in Roland Bock and book him as this invincible, unbeatable wrestling machine. <laughs> Even though by that point, he's a sort of middle-aged, balding German man that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> and right before he comes to Japan, he ends up in a serious car accident, which really shortens his career. Mm. So all of his matches are about five minutes long, but he still has to be booked as the best wrestler in the world because there's no other explanation for how he could have beaten Inoki so badly. <laughs> yeah. I noticed uh, the last match I could see for him was uh, losing to Inoki on New Year's Day 1982, and then he seemed to be vanished from the professional wrestling business. That's it. I think he went back to Germany. He probably did have a few more matches there. Mm. He promoted for a while. Mm. Um became quite unpopular with a lot of German promoters for doing a lot of um, blood and guts and showmanship when they were still trying to present themselves as very legitimate catch wrestling. Mm-hmm. And uh, he started wrestling bears and all the I old car- carnival tricks mm. and eventually got wrestling kicked off TV because he brought, his res- <laughs> he brought a wrestling bear onto a chat show and had two of his own the wrestlers that he promoted do a match on the undercard for him wrestling the bear. And one of them bladed 
on a chat show. <laughs> One of them played it in a match on a chat show, which then meant the bear got the scent of blood. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and the whole thing had to be called off and wrestling wasn't allowed on TV, in, at least on that channel in Germany for, <laughs> for years afterwards. Unbelievable. <laughs> Anyhow... Back in the Denon Arena. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Andre has Hansen in a hammerlock uh, and then kind of gets him in a, in a standing Kimura. Uh, Hansen, uh, he's bash- he bashes away at Andre's knee and keeps whacking his thigh as the referee is trying to get him to break in the ropes. Uh, Hansen gets brief respite by pulling the hair so hard, Andre has to take a bump for it. Uh, but he's quickly backing the Kimura until <laughs> until Andre very loudly calls for a suplex and then Stan finds himself in a suplex instead. <laughs> All of this, by the way, not including the Roland Box stuff, happens before the five-minute call. Um, Andre theatrically threatens a falling headbutt, but Hansen kind of scoots to his knees and gets a couple of shots in before getting clamped in a chin lock. I did like that Andre stopped his momentum and had this cheeky smile of, you thought you had me, you didn't. Yeah. Um, Well, Hansen thinks he's got hold of the ropes and he's not going to be in this chin lock for long, but rather than put a count on Andre to release the hold, the referee goes over and pulls Stan Hansen's hand off the ropes. (laughs) I'm not sure he's seen this wrestling stuff before. I think this is something that New Japan did a few times in around the 70s. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm sure I've seen it a couple other times. It's, I think it took the 80s for everyone to agree. Holding the rope says no. Yeah, maybe it's more. Maybe it's if if you're in the hold and grab the ropes, that's a break. But if you're already holding onto the ropes, it's not. For all the sense that makes. Because I've seen, I'm sure I've seen flare matches where Flair's trying to escape a hold by grabbing the ropes, and the referee kicks it because it's like, oh, he's trying to cheat. Mm. That used to happen in flare matches quite often um, after Flair had already had a couple of altercations with the ref. Yeah. Uh, so it's a bit of a yeah. come up and spot for Flair. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, it used to be a very heelish way of escaping a hold was seen as, as going to the ropes rather than wrestling your way out of it. Mm. Um, I think it was Jack Briscoe effectively turned heel by grabbing the grabbing ropes the rather than wrestling his way out of someone. And. <laughs> It was a simpler time. Yeah, that was enough to show. Yeah, that was a <laughs> oh, shortcut. Geez. That was cheating. Wow. Amazing. So while we're on the subject of ropes, uh, Andre squashes Hansen in them, uh, whips him in and ducks his head for a backdrop, but Stan puts on the brakes, kicks him back upright, and hits the body slam for a massive roar. This obviously takes a lot out of Hansen, so Andre is able to roll clear of the follow-up elbow drop, but he is in trouble. So Stan batters him while he's down and gets as much of a camel clutch as you can on a man that size. Hmm. Uh, Andre escapes but can't get up, so he kind of gets clubbed out to the apron where he's able to grab Hansen's foot and pull him to the floor. Uh, They bash each other into the post and the guardrail, and because it's Japan in 1981 and because they've set the pattern, we get a double count-out. This, however, is not the end of the match. Um, they want to carry on fighting. I presume the argument is, look, we've done this shit six times now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and the crowd definitely wants more. Mm. And you get both wrestlers and uh, Scotland surrounding and haranguing the referee for a restart. At this point, I noticed how much these big men are sweating. They have got eight minutes, and they look like hot dogs. They are so sweaty and shiny. 
Uh, the ref gets the mic uh, and announces the restart. So probably the biggest reaction of the whole thing, and we're off again. Uh, Hansen attacks at the bell. Funny that. Uh, with forearms and a shockingly slick uh, Iponsei judo mm. throw, <laughs> uh, sending the ref flying uh, seemingly just from the shockwave. <laughs> uh, Andre does his tied in the rope spot, and Stan is giddy. He has got this big mm. guy trapped now. Um, unfortunately, though, he only gets in a couple of punches before Andre pops out, turns the whole setup around, and smashes him with a loud forearm across the chest. <laughs> Uh, Andre, he's, he's cackling like a villain as he lays in headbutts and he loosens the corner pad. Um, however, um, Einstein, the referee, clearly hasn't worked out that that means they're going to use that corner and narrowly avoids being crushed by Hansen slamming Andre's head into it as he tries to put it back. Uh, Andre bumps big. He flies back across the ring for this. Uh, mm. But when Hansen goes to drop an elbow again, Andre catches the arm and works it over. And as they get back to their feet, he grabs the other one too, the lariat arm, and does that double arm stretch thing I couldn't remember the name of in the Misawa Kabashi match a few weeks ago. Um, and I noticed each one of Andre's hands was almost fully covering a Hansen forearm. Stan Hansen is six foot four and 290 pounds. I saw uh, an Andre versus Inoki match, which is not worth going out of time okay. really for, but the sheer look of uh, Andre's hand for a sleeper hold nearly being bigger than Inoki's head. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And considering that Inoki's got that chin, that's yeah. a... <laughs> uh, so Andre drives a couple of headbutts into the spine, switches to a double overhook, and when Hansen steps over the rope for a break, Andre just hauls him back out like he's getting a bag of shopping out the back of the car. That is so casually understatedly mm. amazing just the idea of yeah this guy's six foot three i'm just going to pick him up and move him like a toddler yep andre returns the uh slam from earlier from a high angle uh and goes for the giant press his running splash mm. but stan gets out of the way and again he misses an elbow drop <laughs> which appears to be his thing uh and gets headbutted the height on this elbow drop handsome was going for it yeah Andre whips Hansen into the ropes, but Stan avoids a big boot and hits the Western Lariat for an insane pop, knocking Andre to the floor, who I noticed also bumps on his head on the apron on the way out. Oh. Yeah, like seven-foot Darby Allen here. Uh, Andre puts on a blue elbow support that the referee is not happy about for some reason, and I was like, are we really doing loaded elbow pad? And then I was like, hold on, is Andre the fucking giant needing to do loaded elbow pad. <laughs> like, he's not a sneaky heel. <laughs> anyway, the ref tries to forcibly take it off him, but Andre's having none of this, sending him into the ropes and levelling him with a clothesline as he comes back. And I'm like, ah, that's why we got the referee who's built like a brick shit house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, officially, Andre's disqualified, but they keep fighting each other and the eight young lions sent in the ring to break them up. <laughs> and Katsuyori Shibata's dad. Yeah, Shibata's dad's in Yes, there. the extra ref. Yeah, I noticed <laughs> yeah. that. Um, I also noticed the poor bastard who Hanson short lariated right in the face. <laughs> could not identify who he was, but uh, probably neither could his parents when he got home. No, well, that, the, the stories of Stan Hanson famously, the mm. reason he worked so stiff is that he's practically blind. Yes. And there are stories of him thinking he's had a really lovely 
match with someone, getting backstage and then being really hot with him, putting his putting <laughs> his glasses on and seeing that they're covered in bruises, like black and bru- <laughs> blue from head to toe, and go, Jesus, what happened to you? And just not even realizing how like how off his lariat is or how high he's hitting someone. He yeah. just swings and hopes he hits them in the right place. Yeah if there's one thing you can never accuse Stan Hansen of, it's half measures. Like every time I've seen, I've seen Stan Hansen scattered throughout his career. As I said, from AWA, this in new Japan, a bit in all Japan, uh, some in WCW. And this is, that would, that would cover a decade or so. At no point has he ever not given it his all in any match. I've seen whether that's a squash on worldwide, whether that's, pay-per-view with Lex Luger, whether that's here with Andre, whether that's against Misawa or Kabashi, like, I mean, effectively, like, he's a runaway train engine. Yeah. Who can't see. Um, So, yeah, that, I mean, for our third non-finish in two weeks, two of which are in this match, that's <laughs> the end of the match. Um, So, Patrick, like, what did you think of this, this whole, this whole thing? I think it's a, a pretty obvious frame of reference, but it, it is a monster movie of a match. Yeah. Hmm. It is throwing the two biggest, you know, it's not the gorilla monsoon cliche of the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. It's just yeah. smashing two unstoppable forces into each other. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And I don't think it's either man's best match necessarily Mm. i think there are more interesting matches for both of them but it's accepting the fact that they'd obviously wrestled each other multiple times before it's kind of unique in that i've never seen andre sell this much Mm. i don't think i've ever really seen stan hansen sell this much Mm. stan hansen can't have had many opportunities in his career to be the smaller man fighting from underneath no not really no but nor did Andre really come up against that many people who he had to believably sell their strikes as much as he did with someone like Hansen. The idea of anyone else being able to knock Andre down with a lariat or mm. you know, stagger him with a couple of chops or a forearm, you couldn't really picture it. And it's mm. it is the the perfect it's like, like monster movie. It's a King Kong versus Godzilla situation. And it's almost perfect that it does go to a non-finish because the moment this ends in a pinfall, it's just a wrestling match. Also, to co- carry on with the monster movie analogy, sequel? But yes. <laughs> well, this this was you know, number six, wasn't it? Yeah. Of yeah. However many we've had. This, this is a successful franchise. Yeah. <laughs> the irony is they had one match against each other where it did go to a clean finish and it went to a pinfall finish. Really? And that was in the WWF uh, a couple of months before this. So it was like April 1981 in the Boston Gardens, mm-hmm. which is also a show that was main evented by Backlund versus Slaughter. Mm. And the undercard had Yoshiaki Yatsu versus Johnny Rods, which is just a weird collection wow. of wrestlers. <laughs> Those are certainly two wrestlers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark, where do you where do you stand on this? The first thing I want to point out, uh, because it wasn't pointed out really during the player of plays, I really like Stan Hansen's selling. I think mm. Stan Hansen is underrated when it comes to his selling. I think I touched on it 
in the Hansen and Gordy versus Cowder and Temu match mm. that we covered on a previous episode. But it's like almost every time, even when Hansen's on offense after he's taken a beating, he's constantly shaking his head like he's trying to shake the cobwebs off. Mm-hmm. And it's just a nice little thing. He's not excessive in his arm selling, but he'll come into it. But it's just, it's believable selling for a big guy. Mm. And I I think this match has, it's got an energy to it and an edge to it that is above every Andre match that I've seen. Now, admittedly, most of that is me just looking at random matches in the last Mm. couple of days before the recording. And also, it's a match where the restart kind of works because they they start this match at a good pace and they yeah. start the rematch at a good pace. It doesn't wear out as welcome. You can argue that the that the restart actually resets the crowd's expectations and also makes them more rabid, mm. whereas they might not have been as hot if the match had just been one long match into that count out, into that DQ finish. Mm. Um, so it's like, Patrick summed it up really well. It is, with all of the elements he said, like you don't see Hanson fighting from underneath. It's like Andre having to sell as much. It's like, I can see why this is the match that um, got enough nominations because if you have a large list of something that's musty, it kind of feels like Andre has to be in there. But the problem is it's trying to work out what do we use to put Andre in there because the Mania free match is, it's not a good match. I mean, that's that's obvious. It's not it a good match. It is not. However, I believe I nominated it because it is a big moment. And at one point it was the biggest moment in Western wrestling history. And for that reason, it should be seen. I don't for any moment think it's a good match. It's minus four stars at the very least. However, it was what that gigantic crowd came to see. Mm. And that makes it an important and therefore must see in my eyes. Yeah. So I would not say this match per se is must see. I can see why if you have to pick a, a an Andre match, I can 100% see why people mm. would choose this one. Uh, and it's kind of... It's a lot more watchable than I expected a match mm. with these two to be. And also, I've been watching a lot of the G1 this year, and it's a lot more watchable than a lot of that <laughs> tournament. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> There's some guys could could learn from the work rate on the uh, skill of uh, Andre, let's put it this way. <laughs> um, much like you, I, I like that this was go, go, go. Mm. Like remembering that the smallest man in this match is 6'4", 290 pounds, like it goes at a heck of a place and it only slows down for logical reasons. Yeah. And those reasons are Andre trying to stop this man hitting him with his lariat, like trying to damage that arm, trying mm. to hang on to him. Um, I like that they're constantly fighting and then it feels like a fight. Yeah. Even when Andre has Hansen in holds, trying to wear him down as well as selling, Hansen is laying in strikes to try to escape. Mm. Um. Andre did two things in this match that I've never seen him do. Run and wrestle. (laughs) Andre shifting and Andre applying actual holds is quite a sight. As again, as we've mentioned, my general point of reference for Andre the Giant is the WrestleMania 3 main event. Um, 
I think I would have been happier with one stupid finish instead of two. Like the the thing that you thought maybe not to do, I would have liked them to do. Like not do get back at in the ring at nineteen on the double count out, do the rest and just go to the DQ. But okay, yeah. now I know the pattern of their matches beforehand, I understand more why they did it this way. Yeah. And yeah, like it's a very fun brawl. And I think like I'm kind of agreeing that while I don't think the match itself is must-see, I think Mobile Andre is must-see. Like if you yeah. only know him from Vince Jr. WWF, you absolutely should see stuff before that because watching to this and to some extent the two matches that Mark put on Discord, which if you're up for it, uh, I think we should chat quickly about. Yeah really opened my eyes to understanding what people saw in Andre uh, in perhaps like the 70s, what made him special and why they were in awe of him. So if you talk to, like, not talk to, when are you going to talk to? If you read stuff like uh, people from Hollywood in the 70s, like they are all like, they love Andre the Giant for various reasons. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger has his Andre the Giant story, like them going out to the restaurant together, um, uh, uh, Andre refusing to let Arnold pay. So Andre sneaks, says he's going to the toilet, actually sneaks up to pay uh, and then doesn't pay because Andre grabs him by either the head or the shoulders, depending on what version <laughs> you believe, uh, and sits him up on a windowsill and gets his wallet out. <laughs> um, people like uh, screenwriter William Goldman, for example, like loves Andre the Giant. Um, you know, everybody who worked with him on The Princess Bride loves Andre the Giant. Yeah. Um, and but he got that part because they loved him. Yeah, even before um the film of The Princess Bride, I think Fezzik was as a character was written with Andre in mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something new. We have started a Discord, as I mentioned, uh, bit.ly/slash Musty Matches Discord. We have our first uh, uh, friend comment. Uh, Platt on Discord uh, says, a fun match, and for someone like me who has only seen later Andre, it's a novelty to see him able to move around the ring at quite a pace. Is it must-see as a standalone match? I'm torn. Uh, I think Mobile Andre is a must-see for everyone to appreciate him more for what he could do while his health allowed. Uh, is this specific match the best example of that i can't really say having no personal comparisons from the same period um so yeah like, i think that kind of lines up with what we're all saying like this might not necessarily be must see in and of itself but if it's a gateway to mobile andre mm. then so be it have at it go nuts yeah as i mentioned uh mark stuck links to a couple of other early andre matches uh in the or earlier andre matches uh in the discord um uh not gonna play by play these i did watch them however uh, uh patrick if you've seen them as well feel free to chime in i just want to sort of discuss them quickly uh so like tackling them kind of chronologically the first is jean fair who is andre the giant uh versus franz van Byten from january 20th 1968 somewhere in la france uh andre is only 22 here watching this i felt like he doesn't know how to work for his size yet and yep. he gives van byten way too much even if he is the champion like seeing andre uh like just let a small man take him over with a with a uh uh a headlock a flying headlock takeover oh yeah that kind of thing um 
for his part, I think it's very easy to see that Van Byten is very skilled for this time and style. Hmm. Um, I popped for his Hurricane Rana in 1968. I, there's a sort of unclear connection for me between French wrestling and Lucia Libre. Yeah, right. I, I suppose you've you've seen like the crazy trampoline stuff. Yes. Yeah. I, I can't remember what that's called, but uh, so, but f- uh, French wrestling in general from certainly the 50s and 60s and there's an absolute treasure trove of that stuff showed mm. up on, on youtube a few years back is so much faster paced than anything mm. else going on in europe at the time mm. so much more acrobatic and athletic and there seemed to be a bit of a an understanding that it was a show a little yeah. bit more than was being let on say in Britain, where, where it was hmm. still taken a little bit more seriously, and certainly in Germany at the same time. And a lot of the the style, I said there's, there's Hurricane Rana's in there, there's a sort of a style of, of arm drag and head scissor hmm. so that seems to have more in common with Lucia than it does with American or European wrestling at the time. Hmm. And I spoke to... Um, uh, wrestler Mad Dog Max a few months back, and he mentioned that when he talks to wrestlers of the kind of world of sport generation, uh, he was friendly with Adrian Street, who obviously mm. just passed away, and worked a lot with um, Blondie Barrett, who used to be Kendo Nagasaki's tag partner. He just worked his retirement match, I think, two or three months ago this year, mm-hmm. um, working babyface for the first time in 40-something years. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Max told me that a lot of the older British guys always used to rag on French wrestlers not being able to work. Mm. And the reason why was that they worked on the opposite side. Ah. Interesting. Which is obviously also the case in Lucia Libre. Yeah. So I don't know if there's some kind of way, way back connection to French the French presence in Mexico in the 19th century or just one or two talents that kind of... What a fascinating rabbit hole. What a fascinating thread to pull. And I would have no idea where to begin trying no. to, to fact-check <laughs> that or find it out. It's yeah. just something that sort of instinctively feels like there's a connection there to me. Yeah, I have uh, an older French friend in London, uh, and when she found out I was a wrestling fan, she's like, oh, I used to watch the like the catch on TV when I when I was younger. Uh, and she like even brought up names like Van Byten, like um, uh, Le Petit Prince. Uh, and uh, like, and she's like, oh, and, and all the stuff with the trampolines in the corners. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, like she had seen all this stuff like, like go out on TV. Um, but um, so this match itself, like I think part of what goes against it is Van Byten's refusal to sell anything for the enormous man across the ring from him. <laughs> and he's looking at it like, like a wrestler, like this guy is young and green. I shouldn't, even the size of him, like I, I am more skilled. I shouldn't sell for him. <laughs> like Andre will smash him into the ropes with a forearm and he'll just fly back out with a torpedo headbutt over and over. The, the two comments that I had on this was, one, for a 10-minute match, it's pretty repetitive. I, yeah. I enjoyed it, but it's pretty repetitive for a short match. The other but thing, that's kind of the style of the time, though. Yeah. I've seen other matches from around this time that have to say, do the same thing. From watching this, you can clearly see the influence of Vincent McMahon Sr. in, what, in them, what Andre does from 
like the 80s and the late 70s you can mm. kind of see this is where this is where andre was and then he's got the advice and then we see yeah. where he's yeah. become yes as as you said earlier that vince's advice was very much telling him what he didn't need to do yeah and most of that was wrestle do you know yeah. what that has a uh, this is taylor's oldest time when it comes to big agile wrestlers isn't it hmm. slow down you're a heavyweight you know you're you're seven feet tall. There's no need for you to do a moonsault, even if you can. Um, yeah, this match though, like I think it does have merit. It's only mm. eight minutes, and it moves at a heck of a clip. Um, one of Andre's forearm uppercuts sounds like a gun going off, and you can like Van Byten is not a small man. I don't think like he's 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 quite muscular. Like he's mm. he's got a good build to him and you can see how strong Andre is like so easily picking him up and throwing him around. Um and I think it's it's fascinating to me cuz I always like seeing as we sort of alluded to in Patrick's intro like I like seeing famous guys early on in their careers. And if nothing else, it's better than the WrestleMania 3 match. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one, as you mentioned, is uh, Monster Rusimov, Andre the Giant, Ivan Byton, who is Franz Van Byton, uh, and uh, he, uh, yeah, he was listed as both uh, Tito Copa and Hassan Bey versus Rush Kimura, uh, Isamu Teranishi, and Thunder Sugiyama, IW May seventh. Uh, I've put in twenty, I've put twenty nine seventy two, which I don't think is quite right. Um, this one is Andre the Goofy Comedy Heel. It's so weird, like taking bumps off the apron while Terranishian. So Terranishian and Byton are doing like rope running spots and some genuinely impressive like holds and reversal stuff. Mm. And this big goof like is taking bumps off the apron as they run the ropes. Twice he could have killed someone in the front row <laughs> near the beginning of this match. Um, the other thing that adds to this whole visual is Copa is about the size and shape of ECW Taz. So imagine imagine Taz tagging with the big show and you've got Copa and Andre. Um, so even though there's all this impressive wrestling going on, you can't mm. take your eyes off Andre just messing about with the crowd. Like, he's clearly having a ball. This looks like a house show match that accidentally ended up on television. He's very good at working the crowd. He's yeah. very good at... His, his character work is really... It, it's one of the more bits I love about this. The best way for me to describe it, it's... The Three Stooges have a wrestling match. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for the first 10 minutes, it's just a static hard cam with no commentary. Then suddenly the commentator and cameraman show up. Like clearly they were caught in traffic or having a ziggy on the fire escape because um, the camera starts moving and zooming and a man starts speaking in our ears. And then after another couple of minutes, a second camera magically appears, as does a second commentator. <laughs> like There's a very lax approach to broadcasting. They do a ton of comedy spots with Andre tied in the ropes with everybody either running into him or getting thrown into him. Um, I did notice the foreigners are bumping for everything the Japanese guys throw, but Kimura mm. won't go down for a barrage of Rusimov forearms and headbutts. <laughs> um, he does go down for Andre's tombstone, though, and that gives the foreigners the first fall. Sugiyama looks like he's just come from the pool. He is a little barrel of a man wearing only red trunks. Until Matt Riddle, nobody had ever looked more naked on professional wrestling television. Copa <laughs> uh, is wearing only a black singlet, so I guess he came from the same pool. Uh, 19 minutes in, a third cameraman shows up, and we get a third ankle. 
as someone who has produced and directed wrestling television, this was fascinating. <laughs> like cameramen just showing up when they feel like it. <laughs> I noticed Kimura's selling only consists of uh, banging his arms on the mat. He's not good. He's pretty bad. <laughs> Uh, the referee prefiguring CMLL has a whistle with which to admonish the heels. Uh, and boy, does he make use of it. Uh, this might have the weirdest triple team I've ever seen, where Andre is on his back, Teranishi and Russia each are each holding a leg, and Sugiyama is repeatedly just <laughs> jumping in the air and sitting on his chest. <laughs> yeah, that sounds incredible. Wrestling has improved in the ensuing 50 years. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Byton and Copa get trapped in this ridiculous mess too, uh, which the crowd don't find as funny as the wrestlers apparently did. Uh, and then with Andre still being legal, I think the ref misses Byton submission, submitting to Russia's torture rack for at least 30 seconds before finally blowing the whistle to signal an equalizing fall. Then came a comedy spot that I really enjoyed. So before the third fall, Andre is despondent and he's annoyed that Byton lost a fall. And they argue over the ropes in French. And Andre keeps turning his back and Byton keeps slapping him on the back to get his attention and carry on the argument. And after a few of these, Sugiyama darts in between them, smacks Andre on the back and runs, <laughs> leaving him to think his own partner just nailed him. So he gets in the ring and kicks Byton into the heel corner and they carefully time throwing him back for when Andre's back is turned so they'll collide. Andre thinks it's on purpose, turns around and thumps Byton again. <laughs> um... They do a great spot of Teranishi twice knocking Byton down and making a cover, forcing Andre to make the save. Oh, I love this. Yeah. Andre, who is getting out of the ring, hears this happen for a third time and runs over with the stomp, but it's Byton slamming and pinning Teranishi instead, so Andre breaks up his own man's pinfall. Brilliant. Uh, more stuff happens. Andre goes all Dean Malenko and hits a press gut buster on Teranishi to absolutely no reaction or fanfare. And I know, Mark, you said you enjoyed this earlier on. Mm. This was 28 minutes that could easily have lost 20 of those minutes. Oh, it, it probably could. Uh, I mean, I'm very good at editing out the slow periods. Mm. I get your point, but it was just fun. It, yeah. it was long, but I just really enjoyed the, the whole slapstick comedy of it. Yeah, I, like, I, I kind of got the feeling that it wasn't supposed to be broadcast. Like, as I said, like it felt very house show comedy, and then... Um, like with the lackadaisical approach to broadcasting, it was like maybe they got 10 minutes in and the and the director was like, lads, this is funny. Like, go and get on the comedy trade. Will you go and grab that camera? Mm. And, you know, we'll we'll make something of the rest of it. Um, and we just sort of, we ended up with the full tape anyway. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Um, please, the floor is yours to tell everybody where you can be found on the internet if you want to be found, any projects you've got going on, all of that kind of thing. Uh, I am pretty easy to find anywhere. I am either Patrick W. Reed or Patrick underscore W underscore Reed on pretty much every bit of social media that exists. And I'm also at patrickwreed.com where I have a intermittently updated blog uh, looking at wrestling history, uh, usually fairly weird and obscure rabbit holes that I fall down looking at quite often people who end up being um, quite obscure wrestlers, but quite horrible people in history. So I've got a one article up there about a, a mass wrestler from South Africa who turned out to be the leader of a 
paramilitary group during the uh, during the Second World War, before and then an architect of apartheid, which was oh lord again, and it, a bizarre rabbit hole to fall down. Um, Weirdly unsurprising, unfortunately, and shockingly not big papa tea. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is honestly, until you said Second World War, where I thought you were going. I also write occasionally on there about uh, non-wrestling con men and bullshit artists through history. <laughs> Although surprisingly, often wrestling ends up with a, a little side note in there as well. I will also, at some point, have a book coming out. Um, I had a few changes on the release schedule for that, so I don't actually know the date yet but that will be called kayfabe a mostly true history of wrestling Mm -hmm. uh, looking at basically how wrestling became what it is and where kayfabe comes from that will hopefully be out before the end of the year if not early next year but just keep an eye on on social media and everything Uh, the uh, final thing is i ran a show or co-ran a show uh, in june at the tufnell park dome called Slam and Pine Grapple to raise money for Lost Souls Pizza in Camden who suffered an arson attack. Basically, if you've seen any footage of Blue Kane versus Jerry Bakewell in the last two months, it came from that show and that's sort of my fault. Ah, you're <laughs> the one to blame. I bu- I booked that. <laughs> um, those matches are all on YouTube now, thanks to uh, Spinebuster Media. It's a really great show, and every one of those has a donation link, link for the fundraiser, as well as Jerry Bakewell versus Blue Kane. There's a Rumble. Uh, there's a really, really good uh, seven-way scramble match on there with a mad mix of UK talent that are probably never all going to be in the same match again. Uh, we've got Amira versus Darcy Stone. TK Cooper and Michael Oku against the 8-7 and something which I'm very, very happy to have booked, which was James Mason versus Shigehiro Irie, which is a match I can't recommend watching enough. It is, and yes. that's me. That's it, is, it is uh, two names you thought would never step in the ring together, yeah. Yeah. very much <laughs> stepping in the ring together. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I've watched that. It's a ton of fun. As for us, you can go to linktr.ee slash matches for all the way subscribe, links to the full list of nominations and much more. I will plug for the final time, having mentioned Big Papa T, I was on GCP every month for the last year, pretty much, talking UWA Wrestling Rampage with Andy Ogden. Legitimately some of the worst wrestling television I've ever seen in my life, including the aforementioned Big Papa T having at least three of the worst matches that have ever passed in front of my eyes. Um... <laughs> You can go to at GCP Podcast One or look for GCP on your podcast app of choice. We are at Musty Matches on Twitter, Instagram, Macedon, Threads, and Blue Sky. That's way too much social media. We now also have a Discord, as mentioned. Uh, hit bit.ly slash Musty Matches Discord and come and have a chat. On Twitter, I am at Kieran Edits and Mark is at monkey underscore buckles. And next week, reading directly from our podcast schedule spreadsheet, Ah, fuck, it's Benoit again. Yes, uh, Mark and I will be taking the MSN tandem out for a spin uh, as we fulfil our obligation to discuss Kurt Angle versus Chris Benoit from Royal Rumble 2003. No shade on you if you decide to skip that one, but anyone who wants to show up for it, we'll see you in a week. Bye. Bye.